welcome to Body Truth, a podcast that explores the relationship that we have with our body, food, and life told through a storytelling lens. I'm your host, Caitlin Parsons. I'm a certified intuitive eating and body image coach committed to changing the cultural narrative around how we take up space. Each week, you'll hear from thought leaders who are ready to dismantle shame through sharing vulnerably. We'll discuss everything from individual body image stories to challenging cultural messages, reshaping beliefs, practical support tools, and more. We'll laugh, we'll cry, we'll heal. Let's take the next step towards embodying our truth together. Hello, welcome back. Welcome to the show. If this is your first time, I am so excited that you are here. I am so grateful that you are spending time with us today, truly. Every time you hit play, my heart skips a beat. I can feel you doing it. And I am just always beyond honored to have you in this space with us. And I I think it's really important that I let you know that. So I value you. I value your time. I value your humanness in this space and what you're contributing just by listening and being with us when you can in these episodes. Um, I have such an amazing guest on the show today. I have Reagan Chastain, and this is a guest that I have had on my dream guest list for a long time. Uh, Reagan is somebody that I have followed in the health, health at every size space for many years. She is an expert in her field and incredibly inspiring. And we are talking all about weight loss today, the truth about weight loss. And I could not think of a better person to have on the show to go into the nuances of this topic and the evidence of this topic and the statistics. Reagan is incredibly well-spoken around this theme and you will hands down be able to see that come through in our conversation today. Um, she's not a, she's not only an expert in her industry, she has an incredibly powerful body image story that I have a strong feeling you will hear and feel really seen and held in your own experience, wherever you might be in your own body image journey. Um, she speaks from the heart. She's got a ton of truth that she brings to this conversation. And I am just really honored that she's with us today. Let me share a bit about Reagan before we jump in. Reagan Chastain is a speaker, writer, certified health coach, and thought leader in the fields of body image, health at every size, fitness, corporate wellness, and weight stigma. Reagan is a sought after speaker on the corporate conference and college circuits, where she has brought her signature mix of humor and hard facts to diverse stages from Google headquarters to Dartmouth to diabetes education specialists national conference. Author of the popular blog, Dances with Fat, the book Fat, the Owner's Manual, and editor of the anthology, The Politics of Size. Reagan is frequently featured as an expert in print, radio, television, and documentary film. Reagan is a three-time national dance champion and two-time marathoner who holds the Guinness World Record for heaviest women to compete a marathon and co-founded the Fit Fatties Forum, which has grown to over 10,000 members. 
Reagan lives in LA with her partner, Julianne, and their two adorable dogs. Without further ado, here is the fabulous Reagan Chastain. I hope you enjoy this conversation and I hope that you have a wonderful week. Reagan Chastain, thank you for being here. I'm so excited to sit down and talk with you. This is truly an honor. Caitlin Parsons, thank you for having me. I am super duper excited to be here. So thanks for having me here. Thank you for meeting my excitement level. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just dive in because like I was sharing, I have so many questions that I can't wait to ask you and so many things that I can't wait to learn about you. So the first question that we ask every guest on the show is your first body awareness moment. So what did that moment look for look like for you where you realized I'm in a body, this means something in the world that I'm living in? What the F? How did you navigate that? Um, in that moment and also moving forward with your relationship with your body and or food, just share your story with us if you wouldn't mind. Sure. So I was thinking about this and really the first awareness I, ha I have, I was uh, young, like before kindergarten. And I was like, I was a chunky baby. I was a chunky toddler. I've always been kind of a fat person. And um, a relative was telling me that um, I should, you know, be careful about that because when they were in school, they would have been cruel to me. And so they were sort of telling me like the first message I got was like, you should really change yourself to suit your bullies. Oh, wow. Um, because I would have bullied you as a kid. And like, I, I've come full circle from that. Um, and I, you know, was on a journey for a long time, my, you know, in my childhood, it was kind of a strange thing. Cause like I said, I was always bigger than my classmates, but I was also a pretty successful athlete. And so I didn't get as much body shaming as I think I might have otherwise. Um, and then a friend's mom, my junior of, of high school, who was, I am certain well-intentioned sort of repeated that moment and told me, you know, you, you're going to lose that weight, right? Like you don't want to go to college fat, do you? And that uh, repeat of that sort of original moment triggered in me um, a path that went all the way to a full-blown eating disorder. Wow. I went from not really thinking about uh, food and, you know, body size and stuff to thinking about it almost all the time. And uh, in my recovery from that is how I ended up moving into uh, a size acceptance and health at every size place. But it was a long, hard road. And now like looking back on that, I can see all the forces that were at work in both of those moments that informed those people to believe what they were saying to me was like some kind of good advice, but also how uh, important it is that we be clear that it's not our obligation to change our picture to fit our bullies frames. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious from the first moment that you described up until the second triggering moment, which launched you into this eating disorder, you mentioned that you were an athlete, were you doing a lot of team sports? Yeah, I did. So we moved around a lot when I was a kid. And so I did kind of whatever sports were popular where I was. So volleyball was a constant. Um, and then I played, I was a cheerleading was, was a constant. Both of those I started in like fourth or fifth grade. Um, and then I did like soccer. I did figure skating. Um, I, uh, did like sort of musical theater, anything that had a stage and a spotlight and that kind of thing. But you know, that was sort of my thing. 
So what do you, because a lot of the sports that you just mentioned are really aesthetic sports. And how do you not, how do you attribute your level of resiliency during these really impressionable times? Like, what do you attribute that to? Especially you mentioned being in a larger body growing up. Kids aren't nice, but also there's like the culture that we're living in as well, too. And I'm just thinking about the bookends of this time in your life, of these two moments and what came in between. What do you attribute to this level of confidence and just self-acceptance and resilience to? I mean, a lot of it is a combination of privilege and personality and kind of luck of the draw stuff. I also have this incredible mom whose support of me was unwavering. Um, and it helped. I went, we moved around a lot and predominantly in very rural areas. And so I went to very small schools. And one of the advantages of small schools is that you can do as many things as you want. Like when I went to college at the University of Texas, my friends were like, oh yeah, I had to choose between playing a sport and being in band. And that's not how it works at small schools. They don't have enough kids for that. Mm -hmm. So that you can be in the play, the choir, the band, uh, the volleyball team, the French club, like whatever. And so I think that having those opportunities in places where I, um, was in a pretty small pond was helpful as well. And then I just sort of always had a, a confidence about me and a, like, I'm going to do what I want to do kind of attitude. Um, and my mom really nurtured that in a way that I think allowed me to have better experiences, you know, to this day. That's fabulous. So then this moment later in your story, the second moment that you're referring to, what do you feel like really shook that confidence? What do you attribute to it now, knowing what you know now? I know you've mentioned the culture, but it seems like there was a lot of changes for you going into college and just a really um, tricky time in life in general. But what do you think were some of the things that, that really triggered you to go into your eating disorder? Yeah, I think, I mean, like I said, I was always, my graduating class in high school had, I think, 37 kids in it. Um, and I was going to the University of Texas at Austin, which was the largest college in the country at the time. And so I was fearless about that. I just could not wait to get out. Like, this is what I waited 18 years for. But I think her saying that and then me thinking about like, oh, like, is this going to become a thing? And is it preventable? Because I, you know, I'd been sold more aggressively than anything in my life, except white supremacy and racism, this idea that I could be thin if I wanted to. And if I worked hard enough, even though I had pretty clear evidence that that was not the case, right? Like I played a lot of sports. I worked out really hard. I ate the same as kids my age. And yeah, I was just always a little bigger. Um, but I sort of thought, well, yeah, why don't I try to do this now? And then like, I can not have to deal with any of the stuff that comes along with being in a bigger body, you know, when I get to college. And so I think that that was what kind of tripped it. And then I, my experience was that, you know, people talk about the idea that you have the predisposition and then the switch flips. And that was kind of my experience with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It sounds like you're, you're touching on this aspect of avoidance too. Like I'll just manipulate my body so that I can avoid any potential pain or discomfort or shame or any of these possibilities that might be coming up, especially by way of what you're getting uh, you're getting told by your family member at the time to kind of like this foreshadowing. 
Right. And I was going, I already was like sort of had enough of the deck stacked. Like I was going on a scholarship for orchestral perform for clarinet performance. And so I was doing a non-traditional major and I, you know, there was all of this stuff. And so I was like, well, here's one thing I can just like get this out of the way and then not have to deal with it kind of thing. You meaning like losing weight, you'll get that yeah. out of the way. Yeah. 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 So if you don't, if you're comfortable, share a little bit about this time, this like some of these really pivotal moments for you that led you down this eating disorder path and and what did that look like for you how long did it last just what did this chapter look like for you so it was a really intense time but not a super long time for me i was extremely lucky in a lot of this and i'll share that but basically i started to diet um, and it was like the usual sort of eat less, exercise more kind of situation. And um, I am hyper competitive and extremely like charting and uh, tracking focused. And so I was like, well, I can just eat less and less and I can just exercise more and more. And then I got to a point where it was, uh, you know, felt like more of like a compulsion to me. And I uh, became a, uh, I, became a group fitness instructor because that made it normal to be in the gym as much as I was. I will say I have never been as praised for my body as I was during the time when I was the sickest with my eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just ran my body down and eventually in the gym, I collapsed on a treadmill, um, and was taken to the hospital and my recovery, um, was really fast, very atypical. Um, I was able to move out of the, the behaviors and get myself to a better mental space, which is lucky because, um, my doctors, I was still even hospitalized and even this undernourished, I was still quote unquote, too heavy based on the tables they used at the time. Mm. And so my doctors were telling me, uh, that I still had to lose weight to be healthy. And I remember a doctor saying, I mean, don't go crazy like you did before, but you're just a bigger person naturally. So you're going to have to worry about this for your whole life. Oh which is God. not what you tell someone in eating disorder treatment, right? But it happens a lot. The amount of uh, weight stigma within eating disorder treatment is a huge issue um, and mixes also with like racism and transphobia and homophobia within that community as well. Uh, but yeah, so I was then for a period of years was being put on diets by doctors and I was dutifully doing them and I would lose weight short-term and gain it back long-term, which is what I learned almost everybody does. But I was so lucky that it never triggered a full-blown relapse. And part of that was when I started to get into the behaviors that I, like I could feel that on the edges, I was able to pull back. But that again, complete luck. A lot of people have a lot of worse experiences than what I did. Mm -hmm. Were you getting support at the time too? Were you seeing a therapist or any kind of counselor or coach or any, anybody to kind of help prevent the relapse? I didn't really tell like my friends and stuff at the time, I was kind of embarrassed about it and I didn't want it to be a thing. Um, and I had kind of built a persona at the time of like self-deprecating fat jokes. So like I was going to be the first one to make the joke. So nobody else could. And so it didn't really jive with that sort of narrative that I had made for myself and that kind of exoskeleton that I have created, that I had created with humor. Um, and so I, there was a support group that I was part of that was 
again, we've come a really long way. And again, they were very well-meaning, but it basically was like, let's get together and low-key share eating disorder tips while this counselor well-meaningly tries to get us to not do this, right? It wasn't great. So again, I credit it's pure luck and privilege that I ended up the way that I did. Yeah, I think that's really interesting that you mentioned that, Reagan. I I also feel like we're in this culture right now that is doing that in a really problematic way while trying to be well-meaning, but, you know, talking about specifics within eating disorders and especially depending on the community that you're speaking to as well, but we're just in this uh, moment in our culture where it's so easy to access like tips and things like that, even though if it is just sharing, whether it's these documentaries coming out on Netflix about eating disorders or, you know, Instagram recovery accounts, some of them are just really problematic and whatnot. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think we're, gaining awareness. And there are people who have been advocating for this for years and who have been shouted down. And a big part of that is the centering of voices that are thin, white, cishet, uh, typically younger women within eating disorders. And so that community has been centered and all of those privileges have been centered. And so we've not been listening to the people in other communities who've been saying for a long time how harmful this is and how many people are being left behind. And so it becomes a thing where, you know, people are posting their before and after pictures and they end up becoming like, quote unquote, you know, with inspiration for people in really dangerous ways or people post about their behaviors and they want to tell their stories, which is completely understandable, but without the lens of understanding how that can impact other people who are reading, it can be really dangerous as well. And I think that we have to really take responsibility for that and say, where's an appropriate place? Like I, it's important and mental health care is not easy to find and eating disorder treatment is not easy to find and less so for those with less privilege. Um, and so it's important that we create space is where people can authentically and honestly share their story and talk about what they want to talk about, but the whole world is not that place. And I think we have to understand and be responsible for that. Yeah. So where is the line? I'm always curious about people's opinions about this, especially professionals in the health at every size industry, because this is a storytelling podcast. And I think that there is so much power in storytelling. And just like you and I were saying before we hit record, we set boundaries for this podcast. There's definitely a level of um, just awareness around the community that we're speaking to and the safety that we're trying to create in this container, as well as trying to keep things really real and authentic because it is real life. So when, when do you get the feeling like that's just a little too far? How, how do you guide yourself or how would you guide someone else who is at a point where they do maybe want to share a little bit more or are in spaces where it's relevant to share recovery stories and whatnot? What are some pieces of advice you might offer? For me, it's all about setting expectations and boundaries. So that can take the form of content notes, trigger warnings, um, show notes that explain, you know, a page uh, that explains like what you can expect on a podcast or on a page or on an Instagram. It can, I think it, a lot of it is about educating ourselves. So looking beyond our experience, one of the things that privilege does that's so harmful is it creates a situation where we don't know what we don't know. Mm. 
right? So you'll see the fat phobia with an eating disorder community. You know, you'll see people say, you know, I was treated so badly or I felt terrible about my body and I wasn't even like horribly fat. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, let's examine horribly fat as a concept. Like that's not a real thing. That's again, the fat phobia that drove your eating disorder and an opportunity for you to do some work, but it's really harm, you know, so like that kind of thing, looking beyond our experience and understanding how does the way that I'm conceptualizing this, how is it driven by things like fat phobia and racism and, um, uh, transphobia and homophobia and ageism and what can I do about that? And what are people asking? So to me, there's a lot that we can do in our own education just by following and reading people whose experiences are outside of our experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, And then just really working hard to set expectations, to set boundaries, and then to stay within those boundaries. Yeah. I I think that's really brilliant. And just that continued education as well, too. I always feel, I mean, this is totally my perfectionism, my recovering perfectionism showing, but I'm always like, oh, I get it now. And then something else will come up and I'm like, oh my God, I feel like all my work has been unraveled and now I need to go back and learn all about this. Like it really is just surrendering to the fact that there is always a next level. There's always something to learn um, in, you know, just in educating from a health at every size, uh, like just social justice lens as well too. Oh yeah. Solidarity. I mean, I've been, I started doing, I mean, the first protest I ever led was in kindergarten, but I started doing civil rights work in earnest in college. And I did mostly um, queer and trans liberation work as a, I'm also a queer woman in addition to being fat. And when I look at like the things that I did, I wrote the original curriculum for the University of Texas Safe Space Program, which was a program to train faculty and staff to create safe spaces for queer and trans students. And I was a sophomore in college at the time. And when I look back at like the way that I was training and it was the best knowledge that we had at the time, but like where we are now, we, you know, I think to do this work is to be humbled by the fact that, um, we are always going to be making mistakes and it's our responsible to make as few as possible by doing as much of our own work as we can possibly do. And then just in a constant, you know, to paraphrase my Angelou, no better, do better situation. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I fully, I need to hear that. You know, I think that's a, that's such an important reminder because it can feel so defeating sometimes when you realize, crap, I get it. I got it wrong. Was that harmful? Especially when you go back. I mean, I'm speaking for myself here. When I go back and I read some of the things or watch some things that I put out at at times and thinking like, God, this needs to be deleted forever. This is, (laughs) this is just not helping anyone. But then having that major self-compassion in those moments and continuing to move forward. Otherwise we're not going to create change if we're just stuck in our own paralysis of getting it right. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, I, I'm still making mistakes and I have to say, there's no justification or excuse for this. I should have known better. I'm sorry for the harm. Here's, you know, what I can do to repair that according to the people who I've harmed and here's what I'm going to do moving forward. And, you know, then do that and compensate everybody along the way who helps. That responsibility. I I think it's so important. So let's, Let's weave back into your body image story because I I do want to know you're doing social justice work in college and you've been protesting since you were in kindergarten, which I freaking love. Um, but what was that moment like for you where you realized that something had to change with your relationship with your body 
and how did you begin to correlate it with activism and social justice and politics? Was that all woven together? Did it come at different times? What, what did the path out of the eating disorder look like for you? So it came, yeah, in sort of a thread. So I was doing a medically supervised weight loss program and I was eating per the program less than I had eaten at the worst part of my eating disorder, but I wasn't allowed to do any kind of exercise. And that should have been like a huge waving red flag, leaky light thing, but it was not for me. Cause I just felt like, look, the only thing I know about this at this time is that I cannot make decisions for me. Right. Cause I was too fat and then eating disorder. And like, I just can't get this right. Um, but I was gaining weight on this program. And so I was like, this is clearly ridiculous. And I went in and I said, I quit. And they said, Oh, you can't quit. And I was like, no, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure I can. And so they took me into this little room with this huge poster about not quitting. It was literally the kitten hanging on a rope that says, hang in there, baby, right? <laughs> so it's me and the hang in there, baby kitten. And then this woman comes in with a binder and it's full of pictures of fat women just kind of hanging out, being fat. She starts just flipping through it and she says, maybe you don't know it, but this is what you look like. And these women are going to die alone on the couch eating bonbons. And is that what you really want for your life? And aren't you tired of hating your body? And that's a horrific thing to happen, but some cool things happened from it. Wow. So first of all, I was like, wait, that's what I look like. Like I had no problem with these women's bodies. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I thought I looked so much quote unquote worse than they did. And so it was that first inkling of like, well, if I don't hate their bodies, like, why do I hate my own so much? And certainly that I was not far along the path, but it was my first kind of thought there. Um, I, again, went to school in very rural places, had no idea what a bomb bomb was. So that went straight over my head, <laughs> but I was like, yeah, you know what? I am tired of hating my body. Like I'm exhausted from hating my body. I had spent years hating my body. Like it was a job. Like I was getting paid for it and it hadn't gotten healthier. It hadn't gotten thinner. I hadn't gotten happier. I was just tired. Mm. So I said, you know what? Thank you very much. And she said, oh, you're welcome. You can pick up your bars and stuff. At the and I was like, no, no, I quit. Like you and the kitten can hang in. I'm out, but um, thank you. And so I walked out to my car and I sat down and I decided to do a two-part plan. I was going to figure out how to love my body at any size because this whole like lose weight to love myself was not working out for me. Mm -hmm. um, and then, but then I was going to figure out how to lose weight to be healthy. Cause I thought that that's what you had to do. And so the first part, I literally was sitting in my car trying to think, cause I had no idea how to get this done. I just decided I was going to do it. And I was like, I'll do, I'll go to all the lectures, put crystals under my tongue, like meditate, read the <laughs> books. I will do anything it takes. I'm going to make this happen. And, um, and so the first thought that hit me out of sort of nowhere was that I had spent so much time hating my body for not looking like a Photoshop picture of somebody else that I hadn't had a second's worth of gratitude for what my body did for me. Hmm. And so I went home and I got a notebook, little college ruled. And I wrote pages, like more than 50 pages of single line things that I could think of that my body did for me. And I got granular breathing, blinking, cell division, waste management, right? Mm. Smiling, waving. And so then I started to become real conscious of my thoughts about my body. And when I would have a negative thought, I would replace it from, with something from the list, anything from the list. So I'd be like, I hate this body part. Like, no, no. Uh, thank you for breathing. Cause you're killing that. And I appreciate it. Mm. And this sounds hokey and it probably is hokey, but within a few months, it fundamentally changed my relationship with my body. 
because I started to realize how much my body did for me. I started to look at my body as a partner and a friend that deserved my full-throated support, right? And I would never let somebody talk about my friends the way that I let people or the way that I personally talked about my body. Mm. And so knowing that I really was able to shift. And then I started to look into like, where did I get these messages about my body and who is profiting from these messages that I got about my body. And so that journey got me to a really good place with, in terms of my relationship with my body. Mm-hmm. And then it came time, like, okay, now I feel good about this. I love my body any size. Now it's time to like lose weight, to be healthy. And my, I ended up uh, deciding that I did not want to be a professional clarinet player. Um, the reality of the life of that job was very different than what I had imagined. And it just wasn't what I wanted for myself. And so I switched to social work, but I focused on macro social work, community and policy and leadership and focused specifically on research methods and statistics. And so I realized like, I have never read any of the studies about any diet, any doctors prescribed to me. I just did whatever they said. So I was like, what I'm going to do is a literature review. I'm going to go through all the research I can find about weight loss. And I'm going to find the diet that works the most the best. And that's what I'm going to do. And so I read through every study I could find. And I was so shocked and disbelieving about what I found that I went back and I read through them again. And I was like checking things, doing calculations by hand, because what I found was that there was not a single study where more than a tiny fraction of people were succeeding at long-term significant weight loss. What was happening is people would lose weight short-term and either they'd stop tracking them or they, if they did track them long-term, they'd gain it back within two to five years, often gaining back more than they lost. And while there's nothing wrong with being fat or fatter, there is something wrong with prescribing something that has the opposite of the intended effect the majority of the time. Mm -hmm. And so then as a fan of like math and logic, I was like, oh, this, I'm not going to do this forever you know, with all these lists I had of things I was going to do when I became thin. Mm -hmm. And so I really, at that point for my own health started looking for, okay, what is there to support my health if dieting isn't it? Um, And that's when I started to find health at every size literature. And at this point, I still didn't even know there was a community that existed, right? I was sort of on my own with this. Um, And then, you know, so how is that change my relationship with my body. If I'm not like a thin person trapped in a fat body, if I'm a fat person, what does that mean? Yeah. I have so many questions. The first big question (laughs) that's coming to my mind is, well, first of all, thank God you found statistics. And I mean, (laughs) I could not think of a further thing from my own college experience. And I am so (laughs) grateful we have people like yourself who did find their zone of genius um, in this particular area. But I'm just imagining you in these libraries in college, like, frantically researching this and not being able to like stop reading and whatnot, who are you telling? Like, I, I can imagine there's a million light bulbs going off in your mind and thinking like, how does not, how do more people not know about this? So were you going to professors with this information or your classmates or your friends or your family? It seems like you kind of found this magic key to uncover all of this bullshit that we've been sold in our culture. What were you doing with that information? At the time, literally nothing. So I still thought of this as like a personal journey. Oh, right. So I wasn't at a place like I looking back now, I'm like, where was the outrage? Where were the calls to my previous doctors? Where was, you know, telling everyone I'd ever met. But this is also, you have to understand, this is like the live journal area era of the internet. 
Mm. Right. So blogs were really a huge thing at this time. And it was like 2007 ish that I was starting to research this. And so it wasn't like a huge, you know, it wasn't quite like it is now. Um, and what happened was I started to, I guess actually it was before 2007 that I was researching this. I'm sorry. I'm terrible with dates and times. I'm like, there's now before now and after now that's what I got. (laughs) Um, but I started to dance. I started to to do, um, competitive ballroom dance as an adult. And um, my dance partner and I have been going like out for fun uh, to country Western dance lessons at a gay bar. And then we decided, we heard that you could compete and we decided we wanted to compete. And so it was a whirlwind to get ready. We got a coach, we learned, you know, five other dances, choreography, costumes, all of this. And so we got to the first competition and I naively thought it was going to be about my dancing. And then judges said things to me like, um, what a waste of talent at your size. You're going to lose weight, right? Or I can't, I don't feel like I can give you a higher score until you lose weight um, because just, you know, you're just not a good role model. And then um, I was at this competition. It was not too many competitions in and I was sick. And so I did all my dances and I just felt terrible, right? And I'm gathering up all my dresses and makeup and shoes and stuff. And I'm just wanting to get back to my hotel room, take a shower and go to sleep. And I get to the elevator and I turn and this judge is like charging me. Like, and so like, I'm now up against the elevator and she's like, we have to talk about your waltz. And I was like, yeah, it was not a good day. And she said, no, no, it was that dress. And I had just gotten a new dress. It's gorgeous. It's, I still have it. It's a, um, like this beautiful velvet dress with red embroidery and spaghetti straps. And she said, and I'm like thinking my dress, like I can't, I'm sick and I can't really make the jump. And she goes, I couldn't stand to look at you. And so I had that moment of like, do I go off on this person or do I be like, quote unquote, classy? And honestly, I was just tired. So what I said was, okay. And she like, escalated her anger one level and was like, I couldn't stand to look at you. And I said, okay. And she said it a couple more times. And then she uh, put her finger in my face and she was like, you have no business wearing spaghetti straps. And this light was like, bing, this has nothing to do with me, right? This is her and her body issues. And she's trying to give them to me. And I wanted like a wee for Christmas that year. So I was not willing to accept her body image issues as a gift. Um, and she said, you know, I talked to your coach and he said, I could talk to you about this. And I was like, well, you don't need to ask permission to talk to me. And I said, in truth, I probably won't choose to change the dress, but I appreciate you taking the time to tell me it's such a problem for you. And her face got so red. I legitimately thought she was going to take a swing at me. And I was like, should I drop my stuff? Like, And she just, she turned on her heel and walked away. And in that moment is the time when I realized like, oh, this isn't personal. Like this is fat people as a group are facing systemic oppression. This is, you know, I could see the parallels, although there are different types of oppression between what I faced as a queer woman coming out in the mid nineties in Texas and what I have faced as a fat person, but I hadn't really thought of it like that before. And that's when I started the dances with that blog. And that's when I started thinking on a bigger scale about these things. And again, I still was not hooked in. So there's a bunch of very embarrassing blog posts at the beginning of my blog where I thought like I was, I didn't know anybody else was thinking these things which is super embarrassing and ridiculous. Um, but then I, you know, got, so I got connected to the community. Somebody said, I said something about the only things you can tell about somebody's body size or what their size is and what your stereotypes about them are. And someone was like, Oh, Marilyn Juan already said that. And I was like, who now? And then that was my, uh, introduction into the, the world. And now I always credit Marilyn when I say that quote, but, um, 
but yeah, so that was that moment. I, be, I wanted to be a fat dancer is all I wanted to do, but I realized I was going to have to be a fat activist to get that done. Oh my God. Wow. That is such, I, I mean, what's the emotion that you're feeling now? Just telling the story. Well, so I've, I've told this story a lot. Um, sure. and I am, it's one of those things where when you have a story that like you've processed through, and so now it's just an interesting story that explains something in your life, but for other people, it's super traumatic still. Cause they are living it for the first time through you're telling it. So I'm kind of aware of that. Yeah. Now, when I tell the story that people are absolutely horrified and well, they should be that this person did this, but yeah, I mean, for me, I, you know, it was horrible. And what I did, so I then told everyone, like I suddenly had a second wind burst of energy and told everyone who would listen what she had said to me. Okay. So this is the moment that I was waiting for in the library. Like this is the moment where you're like, screw this. Everyone needs to know this. Like, how do I, how do I let go of any shame that's lingering around me actually sharing this and just get this information out to people in my life, not even like the general public, but just people. Exactly. So, I mean, I started my blog and I think six people, including my mom are reading it, but no, at the dance competition itself, I was like, you will not believe what just happened to me. And it turns out she was doing this to a lot of people, Wow. but everybody was too ashamed to say anything. And I was very, so I, one of the things with beginning dancers is that they're beginners, right? So often they are not very entertaining because they're just trying to get through it. They're counting out loud, maybe or in their head or whatever, but I had this background of dance and performance. And so I was a beginner at dancing, but not at performing. So I was like winking and smiling and performing. And I had a lot of crowd support. People were really uh, supportive of my work. And so when I said that this happened, I got tremendous support. And again, this is a luck and privilege thing. Not everybody who says, Hey, I've experienced fat phobia gets the kind of support I did, but people were like, do you want us to try to get her off the judging panels? Do you want, like, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to say something from the podium when we're announcing? And so I had this immediate support, which felt really great and which was really helpful. And I don't think I would have necessarily not become an activist if that hadn't happened, but it was just a nice thing to happen. The first time I was like enough and to have people say like, no, you're right. That's that should never have happened to you. Yeah. So that validation, I feel very lucky and grateful for. I was just going to say that val- it, like validation is so powerful. And I, I can understand the gratitude that you're expressing as well too. But man, I'm so glad that you got that validation to really kind of catapult you into this next chapter of your story. So I'm, I'm curious what this looked like for you. Did you, what, this was after college, Reagan, or this was during your school? The this was dance after college. The was dancing after was after college. college. Yeah. So were you also in statistics at the time? Were you dancing full time? Like what, what was the career that you were kind of creating for yourself at that time in your life? I had taken my sort of process and procedure brain and I had stumbled into being an operations consultant for businesses. Okay. So systems, processes, procedures, creation, efficiency, that kind of thing. Okay, cool. And then you were dancing on the side, you were starting this blog. So how did you, how did you start getting plugged into fat activism, learning about just the politics, uh, body politics in general? Like what were some key moments that really stood out to you, key resources or people that you connected with or just events you attended? 
Um, so definitely uh, when somebody first mentioned Marilyn Wan in the book Fat, so like that was the first that I had heard. And then um, I had been finding studies that showed that um, habits were a better predictor of future health and body size, but I hadn't gotten the concept of health at every size yet. And I uh, came across um, Lindo Bacon's study and that was sort of my bridge into that. And then that combined with Marilyn and um, finding out about ASDA and NAFA um, and other organizations and like, oh, there's a whole community. And then with my blog, I wrote, I basically counted for 20 in a very non-scientific way. I counted for 24 hours, the number of negative messages I got about my body and multiplied that out by a, what it would be in a year. And it was like 300 and something thousand. And so I wrote like, uh, or one, I crap, I can't remember the number, but I wrote like this many unhelpful things. And somebody saw that and submitted it to Jezebel magazine. Oh, wow. And so they contacted me and said, can we reprint this? And I said, sure. Not thinking at the time, I didn't even have a subscribe button on my blog. Mm. So I got like 10,000 hits in one day, which was more hits than I thought I would get in my lifetime. And I had no way to subscribe, connect with me, no email address. Oh no. Um, and luckily they asked for a follow-up piece. And so by that time I sort of had myself together, but like, I'll, I just want, like, this is a consistent problem for me. I don't, I'm not great with like the marketing and that, but I just want to say this stuff and I want people to hear it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, this is a consistent issue in my life, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so, and then I did the follow-up and uh, started to build followers that way and then started to connect and learn and then, you know, learning more about like um, Sonia Renee Taylor's work that came along a little later in my development, but learning more about uh, that and learning from folks uh, within black fat activism community, the ways that racism had been perpetuated from the beginning within fat activism community and what that meant. And like, those were incredibly valuable uh, experiences and understandings for which I'm eternally grateful for. Um, so yeah, that was sort of the progression. And, and then I, I sort of moved from, I originally was just talking about my own experience as a dancer and then have been moving to talk this, about this more as a civil rights issue. And so that kind of was the progression. Okay. So let's pause here in your own story and let's talk about this as a civil rights issue. So it, can you give the Cliff, Cliff Notes version for everybody who's listening? If anybody is just like, I never knew this before. I never thought of of equating our body size as a civil rights issue or considered the possibility that body size and politics, there is an equation there. So how would you, how would you educate somebody on this in like two minutes or less? <laughs> sure. So the idea of fat oppression is hard for some folks. So the fact is um, people in larger bodies are hired and hired less paid and promoted less than similarly qualified thin people. We face staggering inequalities in healthcare, um, inequalities in accommodation, everything from like seats at a restaurant to the ability to get a flight for the same price that a thin person would fly, et cetera. And the idea is that, um, oh, well, fat people could become thin. And so it's okay to uh, oppress them, right? Like if you don't want to pay for two seats on the plane, then you should become thin and, you know, whatever arbitrary size the, the airline has made the seat, that kind of thing. Um, if you want good healthcare, then you should become thin and then healthcare will be accessible to you. And in truth, that is not accurate. That's not how social justice works. Right. And as a, a queer person, I definitely saw the parallels to when I first came out and they were like, Oh, well, if you don't like experiencing homophobia, just be straight. Mm. Right. And if you can't be straight, then act straight. Right. Like I can remember people saying it's like being an alcoholic, right? You're never not gay, but you don't have to act it. 
and then you won't be subject to homophobia. And so again, very different oppressions, but as someone as a member of both communities, I definitely saw those parallels. And so size acceptance is very simple. It says fat people have the right to exist without shame, stigma, bullying, or oppression. It doesn't matter why we're fat. It doesn't matter what the quote unquote consequences of being fat might mean. It doesn't matter if we could or want to become thin. The rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are not and should not be size dependent. Amen. Mic drop. (laughs) I I mean, it's, it's so important and we could we could keep talking about this, but I do have some more questions that I want to ask you. And I also am curious why your opinion, why are we not making a quicker change based on the evidence and the research that you were describing before in all of your statistics research in not finding a single research paper that that showed the long-term success of weight loss. Why is that not more widely known in the medical profession, in the society at large? What's limiting it from us? Is it just our our bias against wanting to know that information? Is it a lack of people saying it? Like, what are some of the the things that are really standing in the way? Yeah. So it's, I mean, the weight loss industry has done an unbelievable job at taking a product that doesn't work and not just making it Mar- like marketable, right? They had they made twenty billion dollars in twenty twelve, which is a ridiculous amount of money. But they made seventy two billion dollars in twenty eighteen, and you can't have that at kind of exponential growth if your weight loss product actually works because people lose weight and then they don't come back, right? It's built on our fee business model, and so what they've done is create this narrative where they take credit for the first part of the biological response to weight loss attempts, which is the short term weight loss. And then they blame their clients and get their clients and everyone else to blame them when they have the second part of the same biological response, which is that they gain back the weight. And we know that our bodies respond to intentional weight loss attempts by changing biologically to become weight gaining, weight maintaining machines. We, there's, you know, good evidence about that, but it's become such a cultural belief that we no longer, um, look at proof. So like when you look at the research on weight and weight loss, it's appalling, right? Research that would have gotten me failed in like first semester freshman research methods is being published in peer-reviewed health journals and without questioning. And that drives the issue within healthcare because that's what doctors are relying on. So I do a lot of talking to healthcare practitioners about the research and they're often incredibly surprised to learn what the research actually says, because what they're hearing is, you know, the conclusion of this study is every diet works. Mm -hmm. But what's true is that 68% of the study dropped out before the eighth week and the remaining people lost about five pounds in two years. Mm -hmm. But there's this belief that, oh, if somebody can lose a little bit of weight short-term, then anybody can lose any amount of weight given enough time and hard work. And that's simply not what's accurate. And so the weight loss industry, including within the medical community has sold a false narrative for so long, so hard that it's become ingrained in our cultural ethos and belief. And it serves a lot of people because they get to, um, you know, blame fat people for the cost of healthcare and for their own issues. And they get to, you know, feel better than people who are fatter than them. And it serves a lot of cultural issues too, but it's, so it's a complex issue. Mm -hmm. It's systemic. And I mean, it's, it's been going on for generations too. So it's deeply problematic and really, really hard to untangle. 
Um, I want to actually, before we go on, I, cause I think I, may, I maybe haven't made this clear. I want to be super duper clear. Health is a really amorphous concept. It's not like we kind of act like sometimes we can throw a dart and hit health. It's not an obligation. It's not a Brahmin of worthiness. It's not entirely within our control. And so I want to be clear, fat people have the right to exist without shame, stigma, bullying, and oppression, regardless of health or health status or what health could be. I never want to intermingle those two things or conflate them. Thank you for saying that. I, I think that alone is such an important conversation that we should be having. And the worthiness piece around how we are putting health on a pedestal right now, and also the uh, confusion around what health is in general, and just how it's treated in our culture as well, too. Um, it's, it, yeah, I mean, it's such an individual, deeply personal choice that is separate from how we should be treated in our society as well too. It's your body. And I think that really just goes, goes back to body autonomy and, and body politics really. Yeah, for sure. And understanding, I mean, it, our cultural idea about health is just that anybody can be healthy by whatever definition someone's using if they try hard enough. And again, that's not accurate. And so it's important that we are always clear about that because otherwise we end up, uh, either adding to or using healthism in, in addition to weight stigma, which does not make it a better look. Agreed. And I appreciate you saying that. Can you briefly touch on that, Reagan? What are some other variables that are, that we're not factoring into uh, health, healthism, if you want to go into socioeconomic status or just, or just cultural bias or anything like that, that you feel like is really relevant? Sure. So it's, there's so many things that contribute to our, whatever we're calling health or well-being. Um, there are uh, things called social determinants of health. And those are the conditions into which we are born and we age that impact our health. And it's everything from access to clean air and clean water to um, experience of oppression and marginalization to wages and vacation time, which can be affected by uh, privilege and marginalized status as well. Um, and all of these things. And so those are impacting our health. Our genetics are impacting our health. Um, and so some research has said that as little as 25% of our actual uh, health and well-being is really within our control. And it's less so for people who have, who are dealing with things like chronic pain, chronic illness, mental illness that affects their, um, ability to, uh, to do things that they might want to do or, uh, that affects their body's systems in different ways. So it's a really complicated thing that we try to make very simple because simple sells. Yeah. It's, and that's the problem in itself. I think it yeah. simple sells and we try to reduce just somebody's lived experience without considering the full picture and also the systemic and generational picture that we've got to be talking about as well too. Yeah. And I used to, it's a mistake I used to make. I used to give my own personal like metabolic health numbers. And what's true is that that doesn't matter. I think it's important that we be clear that if fat people want to support their health, there are ways to do that outside of a weight loss paradigm that are evidence-based. Mm -hmm. But we always have to be clear when we're talking about that, that those things are not obligations, that they're not guaranteed and that nobody is obligated to do any of them in order to be treated with basic human respect. So we're making that clear right here and right now. And if somebody is curious about what some of those health promoting behaviors are, how would you describe them to anybody who's curious? So health promoting behaviors include things like, um, being able to get enough sleep, which not everybody's able to do because of job situations and kids situations and everything. Um, uh, social connection, 
there's research that shows that social connection is more linked to uh, health markers than um, smoking or high blood pressure. Mm. Uh, so when we often don't talk about that, there's hydration, there's um, self-care, by which I don't just mean like, you know, mani-pedis or massages or whatever somebody uh, is talking about, though those things can be very important, but the ability to have time for oneself, the ability to make enough money and have enough vacation time to really care for oneself. Um, there's movement, which we talk a lot in Health at Every Size about joyful movement, but in fact, for some folks, there are benefits to movement, um, either for their physical or mental well-being, um, but that they prefer to get, even though they don't necessarily enjoy movement. And that's also a valid choice. And I think that the idea of joyful movement can create too much pressure for folks, mm-hmm. right? Like how so? Yeah. How do you think that's problematic? I, I totally agree. And I'm so curious about your take on this. Yeah. So there's nothing wrong with joyful movement. If you're moving because you enjoy it, that's fine. If you're not moving, that's awesome. Like I've done both. I can tell you for sure. Having a Netflix marathon and completing a marathon are morally equivalent activities, Mm. right? And if you go slow enough, both a way to waste an entire Sunday, but it's this idea of joyful movement creates this idea that if you're not enjoying it, then there's no valid reason to do it. Mm. Right. And for some folks, and let me be clear. What I'm not saying is like ditch your meds and do yoga, right? I know that people with uh, chronic uh, health problems are often told like just do movement when that is the last thing that is accessible to them, right? So that's not what I'm saying at all. But there are people who have found that for uh, a health condition that they have or for their own mental health, they find movement is helpful and supportive of them, but they don't find it joyful, right? Just like. I don't find doing dishes joyful, but I do it because it's better than just dishes everywhere and no clean dishes, right? So it's something that they do to support themselves, but they don't, having that pressure that is this joyful can be too much pressure. Um, mm-hmm. And at the same time in working, you know, I, I talked to a lot of people who've had messy breakups with movement, right? I'm looking at you like dodgeball, president's <laughs> physical fitness test, asshole, junior high school gym teachers. Mm-hmm. But, So coming back to that on your own terms, to me, the important thing is on your own terms. So if you want to keep trying stuff till you find something that you love, valid. If you're like, I just want to find the thing I hate less and knock out the time that I need to do to support my body, valid, right? If you're like, this is not low-hanging fruit for me. I'm not about this. I don't want to reconcile my relationship. I want a divorce with movement, valid, Mm -hmm. Right. But making sure people have all the options available and accessible to them. That's to me, what's important. Mm -hmm. All the options. Yeah. I I think that's so important as well to your own lived experience. So let's segue back into your story because I, I mean, movement, you are like the queen of movement (laughs) and movement in a really inspiring way as well too. So, I mean, you, you're this fabulous dancer. You're, you have a, uh, a background in marathon running and you also hold a Guinness, uh, Guinness world record as well too. So where do you even want to start with this? You gave this fabulous story about the dance competition. Is that something that you still do to this day? Um, no, I haven't. I've gotten away from dance. Um, uh, I moved out to LA and left my coach and partner behind and kind of, and then I injured my neck, which is what got me into doing, um, uh, the first marathon that I did with my best friend. But the first thing I want to say is that there's this thing called the good fatty, bad fatty dichotomy. 
Yeah, let's this, talk about it, please. Yeah, so it's this idea that fat people who do like the quote unquote healthy things, whether that's what they eat or that they engage in movement, deserve to be treated better than fat people who do other things with their time. And the good fatty, the bad fatty dichotomy needs to die. And I want to help kill it, kill it, kill it. And at the same time, I am, want to be clear, I, pr- I am privileged by it. Right. Because I do, I enjoy doing fitnessy things as part of just like my own personality. It doesn't, fitness participation doesn't make us better or worse than people who do other things with their time. And too often we act like fitness or movement or health by whatever is like morality. And again, that's not the case. Um, I enjoy doing fitnessy things. I like challenges. And so in, 2013, I injured my neck in a freak accident. And uh, my doctor said all the things you like to do, because I'm what's sort of known as a fast twitch athlete. I like explosive movement. I like working really hard for a short period of time. I like lifting heavy things. Oh my and God. He's like, all yeah. the things I don't like doing. <laughs> oh, yeah, awesome. So yeah, he's like, you know, all the things you like, don't do any of those things. He's like, your neck can't support it. He's like, you can go for walks. And I was like, wow, that does not sound like fun to me at all. This so is like, I need some kind of goal or I'm not going to do this. And I was kind of looking around online and I got this idea of a marathon. I was like, I wonder like if people my size are doing this. And the first thing I found was a doctor who was like, you shouldn't even try to do a marathon if you're not, you know, within, like you said, 10% of your ideal weight. And I was like, all right, I'm doing it. And so I emailed my best friend. I was like, I found out that 20 weeks, which was my recovery time from then there was a marathon in Seattle where my best friend Kelrick lives. And so I emailed him and I was like, do you want to do a marathon with me? And like the best, best friend he is email back. I'm in. Mm. And so that's how I started to do that was just like to have some reason to go on these walks that I was supposed to go on because I knew that I was not going to motivate myself without some kind of big goal. That's just my personality. And then I finished it. And I learned after that I could have set the Guinness world record for heaviest woman to complete a marathon. I was like, that's great. I'll send them my time. They'll send me a medal. It'll be, no, uh, you can't do it retroactively. You have a ton of hoops to jump through to get a Guinness record. I was wondering about that. When I saw that you held the Guinness world record, what are those hoops? Tell us the process. I went behind the scenes. So you have to apply for the record first. Where do you apply? Just like um, guinnessworldrecords.com? Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, and so they, the process is not terribly difficult to apply, but you have to see, so there was a record for that, uh, uh, man held. And so I was like, well, let's do at least one more category. And I would like to see them do a non-binary category as well. Um, but currently there's a uh, heaviest man and heaviest woman. Mm-hmm. And so I applied to separate the category to create a woman category and then applied to set the record. And so they come up with all of the guidelines and everything, um, and, it was like, we had to have witnesses, but they could only be there for two hours. They couldn't be related to each, to us or each other. They had to fill out a form uh, in their own words of what they witnessed. Um, the weigh-in had to be on a scale that would weigh me to the gram, which is about the weight of a paperclip. Oh my um, God. And it had to be a health professional and one other person who were the weigh-in team. And then we had to calculate the specific gravitational pull at that latitude and longitude point. So like my packet included, we got a physics professor involved and he like, there's an equation in my packet that I don't understand at all. Um, that I submitted to Guinness. And then you can have an adjudicator come out, but that costs thousands of dollars, which I didn't have. So that's why we had to have like the witnesses and we had a video of the whole thing. So I wore a GoPro the whole time. And my partner, Julianne was sitting in a van and 
y'all, it was 40 degrees. There were 20 mile an hour winds and it rained the whole day. Are on the marathon? On my about? marathon, yeah. Oh my, my god! Marathon. And so it was a looped course. So every two miles, I would pass the van, and she would switch out the GoPro for one with a fresh battery, oh. and then I would take off. And so, like somebody at Guinness apparently watched ten hours of me like heavy breathing, <laughs> and it was on my chest. So like they're just watching my arms go and like looking at my view of the same two mile loop fourteen times. Um, but yeah, so you have all of these requirements to get the Guinness. I ended up writing an article for a, a medium publication called Better Humans. And now I get really fun emails from people like, I'm trying to break the record for like most jumps on a unicycle. Can you help me? Oh so my that's God. pretty cool. That's yeah. such a fun fact. I think that's so, <laughs> I think it's so amazing. Do you still run mar marathons today? So I, in finding out I had to do a second marathon, I could not get myself motivated because like we had, Kelrick and I named ourselves team dead last. And then when we finished team never again, right. It was miserable. <laughs> I never. And so I was like trying to get myself psyched up. And so I started to read books and listen to audiobooks from people who had done like endurance stuff to try to like psych myself up. And a bunch of them had done Ironman triathlons. Mm. And so I got this idea that, you know, because what I learned as part of this marathon journey is that I have always played sports, but I only ever played sports that I was good at right away. It's like, I played basketball, I think one time in fifth grade, I sucked at it never again. <laughs> and so I am glacially slow at, at marathon. My first marathon took me 12 and a half hours. The second took me 10. It's a long time to be out there. Mm. Um, and so I, it also became this journey of like, what is it like to, you know, be fat and part of like the quote unquote stereotype, even though stereotypes, the problem is that they exist, not that people um, happen to fill, fit in them. But like, what is it like to struggle as an athlete at something that I just am not good at and I'm not really getting better at? even though I'm working really hard. And so the Ironman, it's so an iron distance triathlon is a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike ride, and then a marathon all in a row. That's and I was like, well, that it really is a like strange choice, but I was like, that seems like the ultimate expression of this experiment, right? To suck at three sports over a really long distance and period of time. And so I've been pursuing that now. I think I'm in like my eighth year. I can't tell you how much stuff has gone wrong in this iron distance triathlon journey that I'm on, um, including COVID. Like we were preparing, it was going to oh be in God. May of last year. And then we locked down in March. Mm. And so then after a year of lockdown and not training, like I'm going to have to start, a, I'm starting training again, you know, from scratch, basically having lost all of my endurance fitness. So that's what I'm wow. doing right now is, but I've decided I, in trying to do this, like there are very strict time limits um, and you have to travel. It's very expensive. And I realized like, it just wasn't working for me. And so I have a blog about it, ironfat.com. I just decided I'm just going to like, all I wanted to do is do this 140.6. And then I got all wrapped up in like the sport and the, the branded events. And so I was like, I'm just going to do this at home on my home turf. I'm just going to create my own iron distance course and do it. And so that's now what I'm pursuing. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. So is there an official date when you are competing in this yet? So I have to uh, book this, like I have to decide because I'm just doing it myself. And currently I'm looking at doing it um, April 29th of next year, which would be a year from my spinal surgery date. Wow. Oh my God. That's amazing. I'll have to cheer you on and can't wait to see <laughs> your progress with that. So I'm really curious with movement right now and um, 
how it fits into your life because this isn't just like going for a walk or taking like a, a class every now and then. This is really intense, vigorous movement that for a lot of people could very easily get tangled up into disordered movement and disordered ways of thinking and what and whatnot. So how do you keep a pulse on that for yourself? Was there a time period where you really had to distinguish between the two? Like, what does that look like in terms of your why behind how you move your body now and when you know when it's becoming something else or when it's gone too far? Yeah. When I was still in a weight loss paradigm, I really like felt like I could feel my eating disorder, like on the edges, kind of trying to creep in. Mm -hmm. But once I separated body size, once I stopped trying to manipulate my body size, I haven't felt that, that like eating disorder on the edges kind of creeping up on me kind of situation. And so I do take precautions. Like I make, I am try to make sure like, I don't feel compelled to do this. If I need a day off, I take a day off. I don't feel like I have to do every single workout. And if I don't, like I've failed. And so that kind of um, compulsive feeling, I have sort of safeguards against that. But really the, the thing for me was that I'm not doing this to manipulate my body size. I'm doing this because I want to travel this distance, um, mm-hmm. you know, in this way. Yeah. Yeah. So a radical, uh, radical shift for the intention for, for doing movement for yourself. So, and I'm clear too, just to be clear, like, this isn't about my health at all. Yeah. This idea it's, we talk, I talk about this, like athletes don't need to play sports and yet they play sports, they hurt themselves and they get healthcare, right? The NFL is literally arranged around people risking their short and long-term health both physical and mental in the hopes that they will someday score enough points to win a piece of jewelry. Mm-hmm. And we sort of think that's fine. But this idea that if fat people don't engage in health the way that people think they should, then they deserve to be treated poorly is ridiculous and completely hypocritical to the way that we treat people who put their bodies and health on the line for athletic pursuits. So this is about like me wanting to accomplish something that's honestly pretty ridiculous. It's not about my health at all. Mm-hmm. Which I think is important to distinguish, especially in this community of many, many people coming out of diet culture and truly a, a pretty radical way of shifting our thoughts and beliefs and uh, just values in general. There's so much that we have to untangle when we do this work. And it's a it's a long journey as well, too. And it, I think the education piece is so... that. I mean, it's a constant journey for me, and that's been one of the the biggest tools in my toolkit as well. Like I mentioned before, just continuing to learn, continuing to educate myself, continuing to get support and whatnot. I want to go back to something that you just said, separating, separating your body size. What do you feel like were some of the key parts of your journey that really gave you the permission to do that? And especially coming out of this deep belief system of trying to manipulate your body size for society standards and just your journey with your eating disorder recovery and whatnot, when you were kind of on those shaky waters at first, what brought you back to this anchor of, I am separating myself from my body size? What, when you felt triggered, what were some things that you really held on to, to get you through those hard times? Through the first part of my journey, when I was like in my two-part plan, I was just like, I will worry about weight loss later. 
right? Like I'm going to get it this good. I'm going to get a positive, healthy relationship with my body and learn to love it at any size first. And then, so I could just, when I had like the thoughts about weight loss, I was like, that is for later. Right. And then when I went to like, when it became later and I did the research, that was honestly the thing that grounded me the most. And it's, again, it's another big uh, area of privilege where, because I happened to have this knowledge of research methods and statistics and was able to read the studies and understand them. It wasn't like somebody had told me, oh, dieting doesn't work. It was like, I did hours and hours of work to prove to myself that this is the case. And so I would just keep going back to like, oh, like, this is not the truth. You're being lied to. And fomenting a righteous anger about that helped a lot. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of created a little like saying that I would use. So my, my personal saying is, Hey, that's bullshit. But I know other people use like, nope, nope, nope. Or not this time that whenever I would see diet culture, I would think to my consciously think to myself, um, Hey, that's bullshit. So whether it was like a billboard with like, freeze your fat off or like, you know, amputate your stomach or, uh, join Optifast or whatever ridiculous thing. I was like, Nope, Nope. Hey, that's bullshit. And at this point I've been doing it for so long that it forms like an exoskeleton. So the messages don't even get in. Mm-hmm. And so that like that dedicated practice is what really helped me. But honestly, the thing that helped me the most was having done that literature review and the fact, and I continue obviously to keep up with the research and read and break down studies. And I, you know, teach the stuff to healthcare practitioners. So I have to be really on my game with that. Um, but that helps me the most. Cause that's just my personality. Mm-hmm. right? It's like, even if I wanted to be thin and I always want to be clear, look, fat phobia is real. It's not in our heads and it's systemic. So we can't like self-love our way into a seat that doesn't accommodate us. We can't self-love our way into a promotion that we're not getting because we're fat. I am being harmed mm-hmm. actively right now by fat phobia. But what I decided was that I spent years fighting my body on behalf of fat phobia and weight stigma And instead I'm going to fight fat phobia and weight stigma on behalf of my body. Mm. And that's the difference for me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, that's such a radical shift in a mindset and a deep belief that's being formed for yourself as well too. And one that I, I think will really resonate with our community here today. Just, I like how you said it's a practice and it's a process. And I think that, when we go through this journey with our body and dismantling these beliefs and really educating on systems of oppression and forming new beliefs, it is building a new skill and it is practicing and going through a process and just the journey with all of that as well too. So I I appreciate hearing, just hearing yours. What are some of the questions that you get asked the most when you educate doctors or some of the groups that you speak with? Are Are there any just reoccurring themes that stand out to you lately? When I talk to doctors, the very first question is always going to be, where did you go to medical school? And my my answer is always, I didn't. If I went to medical school, I would believe the same things that you do. I had to go outside of academia in order to be able to do this work. Burn. In the way I needed to be done. (laughs) And like, they're not happy with it, but it like, and it's the truth. It's not like, not something I made up. Like that's actually what happened. And I probably would like I, when I started in fitness, I was selling weight loss, Mm -hmm. right? I sold an MLM Mm -hmm. for a while. So like, it's not like I was fully, um, in these beliefs. And so I'm like, this is, if you disagree with me, like, that's great, but this is an invitation to show me the evidence for what you believe. 
Mm-hmm. What's right? the We're rebuttal? Not gonna, um, so at, usually not anything in that moment, um, but there's it's it's hard because there's this first of all, the belief, and we're seeing this more like in our culture that everybody knows, or like my uh, sincerely held belief is the same thing as your evidence or expertise. And so overcoming that is hard. Everybody knows that, you know, um, whatever knee surgeries have worse outcomes for fat patients. Everybody knows that. Okay. Well, have you looked at the studies? Everybody knows that if you get, if you have weight loss before surgery, the outcomes are better. Okay. But have you looked at the studies? Because a lot of it is based on assumption. And so with healthcare practitioners, it's sort of a, a ladder that you take them through from like fat patients are people who deserve respectful treatment and healthcare to like, how do I advocate for the things that we, I need to give the best possible care to my fat patients. And so there's like, there are levels to that. Um, but yeah, so, you know, the question I probably get asked the most is like, if this is true, what you're saying about the research, how are we all so fooled? Mm. Right. And so then like we go into the breakdowns of like assumptions and poor research and, you know, uh, spurious conclusion drawing, right. That if fat people experience a health issue more often than thin people, then their body size must be the problem and making them smaller must be the solution. You can't draw that conclusion like that, right. You have to look at confounding variables like weight stigma, like weight cycling, like, um, staggering inequalities in healthcare and how that impacts fat bodies rather than saying, oh, well, if we make fat people thin, obviously they'll have the same outcomes that um, thin people who've always been thin do. And Deborah Gard has done incredible work in this space. And I rely and lean on her work a lot um, and other scholars as well. But, um, but yeah, so you have to, it's hard because I was talking with John Robeson one time, who's one of the people who created um, the concept of health every size worked on it in the early days. And I think he has a PhD and three master's degrees, brilliant guy. And we were talking about, cause we get booked to do these debates, right. Where we're debating someone who believes in the weight loss paradigm. And he's like, they get their 20 minutes to say everything you think is true. <laughs> and we get the same 20 minutes to say, all right, let's start at the beginning. Everything you've been told is wrong. And so it's so hard because it's a complicated (laughs) situation that requires like nuance and listening. And it's not as easy as saying like, eat less and exercise more or whatever, like we're saying Mm -hmm. to people is, is being claimed as the truth around weight and health. So Mm -hmm. I think that's what makes it so tough. It's so complex. It's so complicated for everybody who is listening and also for myself included, what is one thing that you want everybody to take away from this conversation? Let's just say that we're not just like, is it statisticians? Like, how do you, somebody who's in statistics, is it a statistic analysis? A statistician, you mean? Statistician? Yeah. Okay, cool. I didn't know that. <laughs> so we're not all statisticians or researchers and or debaters, you know? So what would you arm somebody with? to go out into this world and feel prepared if a conversation like this comes up and they do feel like they want to educate, um, a little bit more. They do, especially around families. You know, I I get this question a lot with, uh, with clients as well in terms of just boundary setting and families kind of getting up in arms and wanting to know the research and feeling kind of debilitated with being able to provide, uh, facts and figures for, you know, for people and you're talking to doctors, this is just moms and dads for the most part and aunts and uncles. So what, 
what are some ways that we can navigate some of these social conversations uh, in a really intentional and educational way? Sure. So I want to acknowledge moms and dads are sometimes harder than doctors, right? Because I don't have to like that doctor's not related to me. I'm going to leave. But yeah. So um, I think it's important to understand, even if you have more information, someone else, you're not obligated to educate them. So you can choose to educate. And if you do, that's a courtesy that you're doing them, right? Because they could find that education on their own. So understand that you're not obligated to educate them and you can't control the outcome of the education. And to me as an activist, that's so important. All I can choose is when I, is when I engage in education or activism, I can't make that person believe me, change their mind, act differently. And so I think the core to me of dealing with family and friends is that boundary setting, right? And I use three steps. Step one, state your need, your boundaries. Step two, explain the consequence if it's broken and step three, follow through. And so the consequence can be something really little. It just has to be something that you know you can do. So like, uh, you know, hey, every time we get together for a family meal, like we talk about my weight and my food and that's not going to be okay anymore. And if that happens, I'm just going to have to like take my plate and eat in the other room. And then if it happens, oh, we talked about this. This isn't okay. So like I said, I'm going to take my plate and eat in the other room. So like understand that it's okay. You have a right to keep yourself safe and set boundaries. And you can also choose to like roll your eyes and let it uh, go. It's up to you. You get to make those choices. Um, If you do decide to educate, you don't need to do all the work. Um, And you don't need to like center yourself as an expert in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable. So you can also center the voices of other people. And in particular, look at um, people who are coming from multiple marginalizations, right? Black, fat, queer, uh, trans activists, um, disabled, fat activists, et cetera, um, and center their voices, share their resources. Um, one resource that I think is helpful um, are, that I helped create is called Hayes Health Sheets, H-A-E-S health sheets, and they are diagnosis-specific weight-neutral healthcare guides that are for practitioners and patients and advocates, but also there's like a research and resource bank. So if you're looking for research to send people, that's a good place to go. But look at The Body is Not an Apology, Sonia Renee Taylor's site. She has amazing stuff. If you're talking about clothing access, Sase West has amazing work around that. So, um, you know, as you're following people, you can sort of collect your own little research bank. And then whether it's in a Facebook conversation or an email conversation, you can uh, share that. And you can also ask for more time. Face-to-face, it can be really hard. I, again, luck and privilege, I keep a lot of numbers and statistics and studies in my head. That's Mm -hmm. not something that's accessible to everyone. And so don't feel like you have to, that's not a skill anybody is required to have. Mm. Right. So you can say, let me email you about this. Mm-hmm. You can give yourself space and time. You're not, you know, it's, you're not push button, get education just because somebody wants it. Mm-hmm. This is so great. I, I think these are fab. You literally just filled our toolbox up. I so appreciate <laughs> that. And you just gave so much value to this conversation with your truth, with your expertise, just you and the the work that you're doing and all of these resources that you've shared. I can't thank you enough. Um, where can everybody connect with you, Reagan? You will absolutely have to come back on the show as well too, because there's like <laughs> a whole other list of things that I want to get into with you, but I want to be mindful of time. So where can people find you? And you've got so many resources in all of your places too. 
Well, I will be happy to come back anytime. Um, the easiest place to start connecting with me is danceswithfatfat.org. And you'll see along the top is all my social media. And then I do a monthly um, workshop that's online. And I have a, a, a video library of past workshops. And all of those come with the pay what you can afford option. Um, and then you can see past blog posts and kind of search. So that's kind of the central place to start. And then if you want to like follow me on Instagram or Twitter or whatever, you can find it that way. Fabulous. We'll link it all in the show notes too, for everybody to keep it super simple. Thank you so much. This was so great. And I just cannot say enough good things. I appreciate you. Oh, thank you. And right back at you. I'm, you do amazing work and I am grateful to be a little part of it today. So seriously, thank you. Thank you. That's our show. Thank you for spending time with us today. Our show producer is Stephanie Olea. Shayla Anderson is our community manager. For more information around healing your own relationship with food and body image, click the show notes and you'll find direct links to our guests plus resources and more. If this conversation resonated with you, please leave a review and share it with a friend so that we can continue to heal and empower these important topics around our relationship with food and body. Sending you so much love, confidence, and strength. I'll see you next week for another episode.